Chapter Nineteen of the Deerslayer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deerslayer, by James Fenimore Cooper, Chapter Nineteen. Stand to your arms and guard the door. All's lost unless that fearful bell be silenced soon. The officer hath missed his path or purpose, or met some unforeseen and hideous obstacle. And Salmo, with thy company, proceed straight to the tower. The rest remain with me. Byron, Marino Faliero, four, two, two hundred thirty to two thirty-five. The conjecture of Judith Hutter concerning the manner in which the Indian girl had met her death was accurate in the main. After sleeping several hours, her father and March awoke. This occurred a few minutes after she had left the Ark to go in quest of her sister, and when, of course, Chingachgook and his betrothed were on board. From the Delaware the old man learned the position of the camp, and the recent events, as well as the absence of his daughters. The latter gave him no concern, for he relied greatly on the sagacity of the elder, and the known impunity with which the younger passed among the savages. Long familiarity with danger, too, had blunted his sensibilities nor did he seem much to regret the captivity of deerslayer for while he knew how material his aid might be in a defence the difference in their views on the morality of the woods had not left much sympathy between them he would have rejoiced to know the position of the camp before it had been alarmed by the escape of hist but it would be too hazardous now to venture to land and he reluctantly relinquished for the night the ruthless designs that cupidity and revenge had excited him to entertain in this mood Hutter took a seat in the head of the scow, where he was quickly joined by Hurry, leaving the serpent and Hist in quiet possession of the other extremity of the vessel. Deerslayer has shown himself a boy in going among the savages at this hour, and letting himself fall into their hands like a deer that tumbles into a pit, growled the old man, perceiving as usual the mote in his neighbor's eyes, while he overlooked the beam in his own. If he is left to pay for his stupidity with his own flesh, he can blame no one but himself. "'That's the way of the world, old Tom,' returned Hurry. "'Every man must meet his own debts, and answer for his own sins. I'm amazed, howsoever, that a lad as skilful and watchful as Deerslayer should have been caught in such a trap. Didn't he know any better than to go prowling about a Huron camp at midnight, with no place to retreat to but a lake? Or did he think himself a buck that, by taking to the water, could throw off the scent and swim himself out of difficulty. I had a better opinion of the boy's judgment, I'll own, but we must overlook a little ignorance in a raw hand. I say, Master Hutter, do you happen to know what has become of the gals? I see no signs of Judith or Hetty, though I've been through the ark and looked into all its living creatures." Hutter briefly explained the manner in which his daughters had taken to the canoe, as it had been related by the Delaware, as well as the return of Judith after landing her sister and her second departure. "'This comes of a smooth tongue, floating Tom,' exclaimed Hurry, grating his teeth in pure resentment. "'This comes of a smooth tongue, and a silly gal's inclinations, and you had best look into the matter. You and I were both prisoners—' Hurry could recall that circumstance now. "'You and I were both prisoners, and yet Judith never stirred an inch to do us any service. She is bewitched with this lank-looking deerslayer and he, and she, and you, and all of us, had best look into it. I am not a man to put up with such a wrong quietly, and I say, all the parties had best look to it. 
Let's up kedge, old fellow, and move nearer this pint, and see how matters are getting on." Hutter had no objections to this movement, and the ark was got under way in the usual manner, care being taken to make no noise. The wind was passing northward, and the sail soon swept the scow so far up the lake as to render the dark outlines of the trees that clothed the point dimly visible. Floating Tom steered, and he sailed along as near the land as the depth of the water and the overhanging branches would allow. It was impossible to distinguish anything that stood within the shadows of the shore, but the forms of the sail and of the hut were discerned by the young sentinel on the beach, who has already been mentioned. In the moment of sudden surprise a deep Indian exclamation escaped him. In that spirit of recklessness and ferocity that formed the essence of Hurry's character, this man dropped his rifle and fired. The ball was sped by accident, or by that overruling providence which decides the fates of all, and the girl fell. Then followed the scene with the torches which has just been described. At the precise moment when Hurry committed this act of unthinking cruelty, the canoe of Judith was within a hundred feet of the spot from which the ark had so lately moved. Her own course has been described, and it has now become our office to follow that of her father and his companions. The shriek announced the effects of the random shot of March, and it also proclaimed that the victim was a woman. Hurry himself was startled at these unlooked-for consequences, and for a moment he was sorely disturbed by conflicting sensations. At first he laughed, in reckless and rude-minded exultation, and then conscience that monitor planted in our hearts by God, and which receives its more general growth from the training bestowed in the tillage of childhood, shot a pang to his heart. For a minute the mind of this creature, equally of civilization and of barbarism, was a sort of chaos as to feeling, not knowing what to think of its own act. And then the obstinacy and pride of one of his habits interposed to assert their usual ascendancy. He struck the butt of his rifle on the bottom of the scow with a species of defiance, and began to whistle a low air with an affectation of indifference. All this time the ark was in motion, and it was already opening the bay above the point, and was consequently quitting the land. Hurry's companions did not view his conduct with the same indulgence as that with which he appeared disposed to regard it himself. Hutter growled out his dissatisfaction, for the act led to no advantage, while it threatened to render the warfare more vindictive than ever, and none censure motiveless departures from the right more severely than the mercenary and unprincipled. Still he commanded himself, the captivity of Deerslayer rendering the arm of the offender of double consequence to him at that moment. Chingachgook arose, and for a single instant the ancient animosity of tribes was forgotten, in a feeling of color. But he recollected himself in season to prevent any of the fierce consequences that, for a passing moment, he certainly meditated. Not so with Hist. Rushing through the hut, or cabin, the girl stood at the side of Hurry almost as soon as his rifle touched the bottom of the scow, and with a fearlessness that did credit to her heart she poured out her reproaches with the generous warmth of a woman. "'What for you shoot?' she said. "'What Huron gal do dat you kill him? What you tink Manitou say? What you tink Manitou feel? What Iroquois do? No get honor, no get camp, no get prisoner, no get battle? No get scalp, no get nothing at all. Blood come after blood. 
How you feel your wife killed? Who pity you when tear come for mother or sister? You big as great pine, Huron gal little slender birch. Why you fall on her and crush her? You tink Huron forget it? No. Redskin never forget. Never forget friend, never forget enemy. Red man Manitou in dat. Why you so wicked, great pale-face? Hurry had never been so daunted as by this close and warm attack of the Indian girl. It is true that she had a powerful ally in his conscience, and while she spoke earnestly it was in tones so feminine as to deprive him of any pretext for unmanly anger. The softness of her voice added to the weight of her remonstrance, by lending to the latter an air of purity and truth. Like most vulgar-minded men, he had only regarded the Indians through the medium of their coarser and fiercer characteristics. It had never struck him that the affections are human, that even high principles, modified by habits and prejudices, but not the less elevated within their circle, can exist in the savage state, and that the warrior who is most ruthless in the field can submit to the softest and gentlest influences in the moments of domestic quiet. In a word, it was the habit of his mind to regard all Indians as being only a slight degree removed from the wild beasts that roamed the woods, and to feel disposed to treat them accordingly, whenever interest or caprice supplied a motive or an impulse. Still, though daunted by these reproaches, the handsome barbarian could hardly be said to be penitent. He was too much rebuked by conscience to suffer an outbreak of temper to escape him and perhaps he felt that he had already committed an act that might justly bring his manhood in question. Instead of resenting or answering the simple but natural appeal of Hist, he walked away, like one who disdained entering into a controversy with a woman. In the meanwhile the ark swept onward, and by the time the scene with the torches was enacting beneath the trees, it had reached the open lake, floating Tom causing it to shear further from the land with a sort of instinctive dread of retaliation. An hour now passed in gloomy silence, no one appearing disposed to break it. Hist had retired to her pallet, and Chingachgook lay sleeping in the forward part of the scow. Hutter and Hurry alone remained awake, the former at the steering oar, while the latter brooded over his own conduct, with the stubbornness of one little given to a confession of his errors and the secret goadings of the worm that never dies. This was at the moment when Judith and Hetty reached the center of the lake, and had lain down to endeavor to sleep in their drifting canoe. The night was calm, though so much obscured by clouds. The season was not one of storms, and those which did occur in the month of June, on that embedded water, though frequently violent, were always of short continuance. Nevertheless, there was the usual current of heavy, damp night air, which passing over the summits of the trees scarcely appeared to descend as low as the surface of the glassy lake, but kept moving a short distance above it, saturated with the humidity that constantly arose from the woods, and apparently never proceeding far in any one direction. The currents were influenced by the formation of the hills, as a matter of course, a circumstance that rendered even fresh breezes baffling and which reduced the feebler efforts of the night air to be a sort of capricious and fickle sighings of the woods. Several times the head of the ark pointed east, and once it was actually turned towards the south again, 
but on the whole it worked its way north, Hutter making always a fair wind, if wind it could be called, his principal motive appearing to keep in motion, in order to defeat any treacherous design of his enemies. He now felt some little concern about his daughters, and perhaps as much about the canoe, but on the whole this uncertainty did not much disturb him, as he had the reliance already mentioned on the intelligence of Judith. It was the season of the shortest nights, and it was not long before the deep obscurity which precedes the day began to yield to the returning light. If any earthly scene could be presented to the senses of man that might soothe his passions and temper his ferocity, it was that which grew upon the eyes of Hutter and Hurry as the hours advanced, changing night to morning. There were the usual soft tints of the sky, in which neither the gloom of darkness nor the brilliancy of the sun prevails, and under which objects appear more unearthly, and we might add wholly, than at any other portion of the twenty-four hours. The beautiful and soothing calm of eventide has been extolled by a thousand poets, and yet it does not bring with it the far-reaching and sublime thoughts of the half-hour that precedes the rising of a summer sun. In the one case the panorama is gradually hid from the sight, while in the other its objects start out from the unfolding picture, first dim and misty, then marked in, in solemn background. Next seen in the witchery of an increasing, a thing as different as possible from the decreasing twilight, and finally mellow, distinct, and luminous, as the rays of the great centre of light diffuse themselves in the atmosphere. The hymns of birds, too, have no moral counterpart in the retreat to the roost, or the flight to the nest, and these invariably accompany the advent of the day, until the appearance of the sun itself bathes in deep joy the land and sea. All this, however, Hutter and Hurry witnessed without experiencing any of that calm delight which the spectacle is wont to bring, when the thoughts are just and the aspirations pure. They not only witnessed it, but they witnessed it under circumstances that had a tendency to increase its power, and to heighten its charms. Only one solitary object became visible in the returning light that had received its form or uses from human taste or human desires which as often deform as beautify a landscape. This was the castle, all the rest being native and fresh from the hand of God. That singular residence, too, was in keeping with the natural objects of the view, starting out from the gloom, quaint, picturesque, and ornamental. Nevertheless, the whole was lost on the observers, who knew no feeling of poetry, had lost their sense of natural devotion in lives of obdurate and narrow selfishness and had little other sympathy with nature than that which originated with her lowest wants. As soon as the light was sufficiently strong to allow of a distinct view of the lake, and more particularly of its shores, Hutter turned the head of the ark directly towards the castle, with the avowed intention of taking possession, for the day at least, as the place most favorable for meeting his daughters and for carrying on his operations against the Indians. By this time Chingachgook was up, and Hist was heard stirring among the furniture of the kitchen. The place for which they steered was distant only a mile, and the air was sufficiently favorable to permit it to be reached by means of the sail. At this moment, too, to render the appearances generally auspicious, the canoe of Judith was seen floating northward in the broadest part of the lake, having actually passed the scow in the darkness 
in obedience to no other power than that of the elements. Hutter got his glass, and took a long and anxious survey, to ascertain if his daughters were in the light craft or not, and a slight exclamation like that of joy escaped him as he caught a glimpse of what he rightly conceived to be a part of Judith's dress above the top of the canoe. At the next instant the girl arose and was seen gazing about her, like one assuring herself of her situation. A minute later Hetty was seen on her knees, in the other end of the canoe, repeating the prayers that had been taught her in childhood by a misguided but repentant mother. As Hutter laid down the glass, still drawn to its focus, the serpent raised it to his eye and turned it towards the canoe. It was the first time he had ever used such an instrument, and Hist understood by his hugh, the expression of his face, and his entire mien, that something wonderful had excited his admiration. It is well known that the American Indians, more particularly those of superior characters and stations, singularly maintain their self-possession and stoicism in the midst of the flood of marvels that present themselves in their occasional visits to the abodes of civilization. And Chingachgook had imbibed enough of this impassibility to suppress any very undignified manifestation of surprise. With Hist, however, no such law was binding, and when her lover managed to bring the glass in a line with the canoe, and her eye was applied to the smaller end, the girl started back in alarm. Then she clapped her hands with delight, and a laugh, the usual attendant of untutored admiration, followed. A few minutes sufficed to enable this quick-witted girl to manage the instrument for herself, and she directed it at every prominent object that struck her fancy. Finding a rest in one of the windows, she and the Delaware first surveyed the lake, then the shores, the hills, and finally the castle attracted their attention. After a long steady gaze at the latter, Hist took away her eye and spoke to her lover in a low, earnest manner. Chingachgook immediately placed his eye to the glass, and his look even exceeded that of his betrothed in length and intensity. Again they spoke together confidentially, appearing to compare opinions, after which the glass was laid aside, and the young warrior quitted the cabin to join Hutter and Hurry. The ark was slowly but steadily advancing, and the castle was materially within half a mile, when Chingachgook joined the two white men in the stern of the scow. His manner was calm, but it was evident to the others, who were familiar with the habits of the Indians, that he had something to communicate. Hurry was generally prompt to speak and, according to custom, he took the lead on this occasion. "'Out with it, Redskin!' he cried, in his usual rough manner. "'Have you discovered a chipmunk in a tree, or is there a salmon-trout swimming under the bottom of the scow? You find what a pale-face can do in the way of eyes now, Sarpent, and mustn't wonder that they can see the land of the Indians from afar off.' "'No good to go to Castle,' put in Chingachgook, with emphasis, the moment the other gave him an opportunity of speaking. "'Huron there!' The devil he is! If this should turn out to be true, Floating Tom, a pretty trap we were about to pull down on our heads. Huron there! Well, this may be so, but no signs can I see of anything near or about the old hut but logs, water, and bark, baiting two or three windows and one door. Hutter called for the glass, and took a careful survey of the spot, before he ventured an opinion at all. Then he somewhat cavalierly expressed his dissent from that given by the Indian. "'You've got this glass wrong and foremost, Delaware,' continued Hurry. "'Neither the old man nor I can see any trail in the lake. 
"'No trail! Water make no trail,' said Hist, eagerly. "'Stop boat! No go too near! Huron there!' "'Aye, that's it. Stick to the same tale, and more people will believe you. I hope, Sarpent, that you and your gal will agree in telling the same story arter marriage, as well as you do now. Huron there! Whereabouts is he to be seen, in the padlock, or the chains, or the logs? There isn't a jail in the colony that has a more lock-up look about it than old Tom's Chiente, and I know something about jails from experience." "'No see Moccasin,' said Hist, impatiently. "'Why no look, and see him?' "'Give me the glass, Harry,' interrupted Hutter, "'and lower the sail. It is seldom that an Indian woman meddles, and when she does, there is generally a cause for it. There is truly a moccasin floating against one of the piles, and it may or may not be a sign that the castle hasn't escaped visitors in our absence. Moccasins are no rarities, however, for I wear em myself, and Deerslayer wears em, and you wear em, March, and for that matter so does Hetty, quite as often as she wears shoes, though I never yet saw Judith trust her pretty foot in a moccasin. Hurry had lowered the sail, and by this time the ark was within two hundred yards of the castle setting in nearer and nearer each moment, but at a rate too slow to excite any uneasiness. Each now took the glass in turn, and the castle and everything near it was subjected to a scrutiny still more rigid than ever. There the moccasin lay, beyond a question, floating so lightly and preserving its form so well that it was scarcely wet. It had caught by a piece of the rough bark of one of the piles, on the exterior of the water-palisade that formed the dock already mentioned which circumstance alone prevented it from drifting away before the air. There were many modes, however, of accounting for the presence of the moccasin, without supposing it to have been dropped by an enemy. It might have fallen from the platform even while Hutter was in possession of the place, and drifted to the spot where it was now seen, remaining unnoticed until detected by the acute vision of Hist. It might have drifted from a distance, up or down the lake, and accidentally become attached to the pile or palisade. It might have been thrown from a window, and alighted in that particular place, or it might certainly have fallen from a scout, or an assailant, during the past night, who was obliged to abandon it to the lake, in the deep obscurity which then prevailed. All these conjectures passed from Hutter to Hurry, the former appearing disposed to regard the omen as a little sinister, while the latter treated it with his usual reckless disdain. As for the Indian, he was of opinion that the moccasin should be viewed as one would regard a trail in the woods, which might or might not, equally, prove to be threatening. Hist, however, had something available to propose. She declared her readiness to take a canoe, to proceed to the palisade, and bring away the moccasin, when its ornaments would show whether it came from the Canadas or not. Both the white men were disposed to accept this offer, but the Delaware interfered to prevent the risk. If such a service was to be undertaken, it best became a warrior to expose himself in its execution, and he gave his refusal to let his betrothed proceed, much in the quiet but brief manner in which an Indian husband issues his commands. "'Well, then, Delaware, go yourself, if you're so tender of your squaw,' put in the unceremonious hurry. "'That moccasin must be had, or floating Tom will keep off here at arm's length till the hearth cools in his cabin.' It's but a little deerskin arter all, and cut this away or that away, it's not a scarecrow to frighten true hunters from their game. What say you, Sarpent? Shall you or I canoe it? Let red man go. 
better eyes than pale-face, no Huron trick better, too. That I'll gainsay to the hour of my death. A white man's eyes and a white man's nose, and for that matter his sight and ears, are all better than an Injun's when fairly tried. Time and again have I put that to the proof, and what is proved is certain. Still, I suppose the poorest vagabond going, whether Delaware or Huron, can find his way to yonder hut and back again. And so, Sarpent, use your paddle and welcome." Chingachgook was already in the canoe, and he dipped the implement the other named into the water, just as Hurry's limber tongue ceased. Watawah saw the departure of her warrior on this occasion with the submissive silence of an Indian girl, but with most of the misgivings and apprehensions of her sex. Throughout the whole of the past night, and down to the moment when they used the glass together in the hut, Chingachgook had manifested as much manly tenderness towards his betrothed as one of the most refined sentiment could have shown under similar circumstances. But now every sign of weakness was lost in an appearance of stern resolution. Although Hist timidly endeavored to catch his eye as the canoe left the side of the ark, the pride of a warrior would not permit him to meet her fond and anxious looks. The canoe departed, and not a wandering glance rewarded her solicitude. Nor were the Delaware's care and gravity misplaced, under the impressions with which he proceeded on this enterprise. If the enemy had really gained possession of the building, he was obliged to put himself under the very muzzles of their rifles, as it were, and this, too, without the protection of any of that cover which forms so essential an ally in Indian warfare. It is scarcely possible to conceive of a service more dangerous and had the serpent been fortified by the experience of ten more years, or had his friend the deerslayer been present, it would never have been attempted, the advantages in no degree compensating for the risk. But the pride of an Indian chief was acted on by the rivalry of color, and it is not unlikely that the presence of the very creature from whom his ideas of manhood prevented his receiving a single glance, overflowing as he was with the love she so well merited, had no small influence on his determination. Chingachgook paddled steadily towards the palisades, keeping his eyes on the different loops of the building. Each instant he expected to see the muzzle of a rifle protruded, or to hear its sharp crack. But he succeeded in reaching the piles in safety. Here he was, in a measure protected, having the heads of the palisades between him and the hut, and the chances of any attempt on his life while thus covered were greatly diminished. The canoe had reached the piles with its head inclining northward, and at a short distance from the moccasin. Instead of turning to pick up the latter, the Delaware slowly made the circuit of the whole building, deliberately examining every object that should betray the presence of enemies, or the commission of violence. Not a single sign could he discover, however, to confirm the suspicions that had been awakened. The stillness of desertion pervaded the building. Not a fastening was displaced, not a window had been broken. The door looked as secure as at the hour when it was closed by Hutter, and even the gate of the dock had all the customary fastenings. In short, the most wary and jealous eye could detect no other evidence of the visit of enemies than that which was connected with the appearance of the floating moccasin. The Delaware was now greatly at a loss how to proceed. At one moment, as he came round in front of the castle, he was on the point of stepping up on the platform and of applying his eye to one of the loops with a view of taking a direct personal inspection of the state of things within. But he hesitated. Though of little experience in such matters himself, he had heard so much of Indian artifices through traditions, 
had listened with such breathless interest to the narration of the escapes of the elder warriors, and in short was so well schooled in the theory of his calling, that it was almost as impossible for him to make any gross blunder on such an occasion as it was for a well-grounded scholar who had commenced correctly to fail in solving his problem in mathematics. Relinquishing the momentary intention to land, the chief slowly pursued his course round the palisades. As he approached the moccasin, having now nearly completed the circuit of the building, he threw the ominous article into the canoe by a dexterous and almost imperceptible movement of his paddle. He was now ready to depart, but retreat was even more dangerous than the approach, as the eye could no longer be riveted on the loops. If there was really any one in the castle, the motive of the Delaware in reconnoitering must be understood, and it was the wisest way, however perilous it might be, to retire with an air of confidence, as if all distrust were terminated by the examination. Such, accordingly, was the course adopted by the Indian, who paddled deliberately away, taking the direction of the ark, suffering no nervous impulse to quicken the emotions of his arms, or to induce him to turn even a furtive glance behind him. No tender wife, reared in the refinements of the highest civilization, ever met a husband, on his return from the field, with more of sensibility in her countenance than Hist discovered, as she saw the great serpent of the Delawares step, unharmed, into the ark. Still she repressed her emotion, though the joy that sparkled in her dark eyes, and the smile that lighted her pretty mouth, spoke a language that her betrothed could understand. "'Well, Sarpent,' cried Hurry, always the first to speak, "'what news from the muskrats? Did they shew their teeth, as you surrounded their dwelling?' "'I know like him,' sententiously returned the Delaware, "'too still. So still can see silence.' "'That's downright Injun, as if anything could make less noise than nothing. "'If you've no better reason than this to give, old Tom had better hoist his sail, "'and go and get his breakfast under his own roof. "'What has become of the moccasin?' "'Here,' returned Chingachgook, holding up his prize for the general inspection. "'The moccasin was examined, and Hist confidently pronounced it to be Huron, "'by the manner in which the porcupine's quills were arranged on its front.' Hutter and the Delaware, too, were decidedly of the same opinion. Admitting all this, however, it did not necessarily follow that its owners were in the castle. The moccasin might have drifted from a distance, or it might have fallen from the foot of some scout who had quitted the place when his errand was accomplished. In short, it explained nothing, while it awakened so much distrust. Under the circumstances, Hutter and Hurry were not men to be long deterred from proceeding by proofs as slight as that of the moccasin. They hoisted the sail again, and the ark was soon in motion heading towards the castle. The wind or air continued light, and the movement was sufficiently slow to allow of a deliberate survey of the building, as the scow approached. The same death-like silence reigned, and it was difficult to fancy that anything possessing animal life could be in or around the place. Unlike the serpent, whose imagination had acted through his traditions until he was ready to perceive an artificial in a natural stillness, the others saw nothing to apprehend in a tranquillity that, in truth, merely denoted the repose of inanimate objects. The accessories of the scene, too, were soothing and calm, rather than exciting. The day had not yet advanced so far as to bring the sun above the horizon, but the heavens, the atmosphere, and the woods and lake were all seen under that softened light which immediately precedes his appearance, 
and which perhaps is the most witching period of the four-and-twenty hours. It is the moment when everything is distinct, even the atmosphere seeming to possess a liquid lucidity, the hues appearing grey and softened, with the outlines of objects defined, and the perspective just as moral truths that are presented in their simplicity without the meretricious aids of ornament or glitter. In a word, it is the moment when the senses seem to recover their powers, in the simplest and most accurate forms, like the mind emerging from the obscurity of doubts into the tranquillity and peace of demonstration. Most of the influence that such a scene is apt to produce on those who are properly constituted in a moral sense was lost on Hutter and Hurry, but both the Delawares, though too much accustomed to witness the loveliness of morning-tide to stop to analyze their feelings, were equally sensible of the beauties of the hour, though it was probably in a way unknown to themselves. It disposed the young warrior to peace, and never had he felt less longings for the glory of the combat than when he joined Hist in the cabin, the instant the scow rubbed against the side of the platform. From the indulgence of such gentle emotions, however, he was aroused by a rude summons from Hurry, who called on him to come forth and help to take in the sail and to secure the ark. Chingachgook obeyed, and by the time he had reached the head of the scow, Hurry was on the platform, stamping his feet, like one glad to touch what by comparison might be called terra firma, and proclaiming his indifference to the whole Huron tribe in his customary noisy dogmatical manner. Hutter had hauled a canoe up to the head of the scow, and was already about to undo the fastenings of the gate, in order to enter within the dock. March had no other motive in landing than a senseless bravado, and having shaken the door in a manner to put its solidity to the proof, he joined Hutter in the canoe, and began to aid him in opening the gate. The reader will remember that this mode of entrance was rendered necessary by the manner in which the owner of this singular residence habitually secured it, whenever it was left empty more particularly at moments when danger was apprehended. Hutter had placed a line in the Delaware's hand on entering the canoe, intimating that the other was to fasten the ark to the platform and to lower the sail. Instead of following these directions, however, Chingachgook left the sail standing, and throwing the bite of the rope over the head of a pile, he permitted the ark to drift round till it lay against the defences, in a position where it could be entered only by means of a boat or by passing along the summits of the palisades the latter being an exploit that required some command of the feet, and which was not to be attempted in the face of a resolute enemy. In consequence of this change in the position of the scow, which was effected before Hutter had succeeded in opening the gate of his dock, the ark and the castle lay, as sailors would express it, yard-arm and yard-arm, kept asunder some ten or twelve feet by means of the piles. As the scow pressed close against the latter, their tops formed a species of breastwork that rose to the height of a man's head, covering in a certain degree the parts of the scow that were not protected by the cabin. The Delaware surveyed this arrangement with great satisfaction, and, as the canoe of Hutter passed through the gate into the dock, he thought that he might defend his position against any garrison in the castle, for sufficient time, could he but have had the helping arm of his friend Deerslayer. As it was, he felt comparatively secure, and no longer suffered the keen apprehensions he had lately experienced in behalf of Hist. A single shove sent the canoe from the gate to the trap beneath the castle. Here Hutter found all fast, neither padlock nor chain nor bar having been molested. The key was produced, the locks removed, the chain loosened, and the trap pushed upward. 
Hurry now thrust his head in at the opening. The arms followed, and the colossal legs rose without any apparent effort. At the next instant his heavy foot was heard stamping in the passage above, that which separated the chambers of the father and the daughters, and into which the trap opened. He then gave a shout of triumph. "'Come on, old Tom!' the reckless woodsman called out from within the building. "'Here's your tenement safe and sound, aye, and as empty as a nut that has passed half an hour in the paws of a squirrel. The Delaware brags of being able to see silence. Let him come here, and he may feel it in the bargain.' "'Any silence where you are, hurry, Harry,' returned Hutter, thrusting his head in at the hole as he uttered the last word, which instantly caused his voice to sound smothered to those without. Any silence where you are ought to be both seen and felt, for it's unlike any other silence. Come, come, old fellow, hoist yourself up, and we'll open doors and windows and let in the fresh air to brighten up matters. Few words in troublesome times make men the best friends. Your darter Judith is what I call a misbehaving young woman, and the hold of the whole family on me is so much weakened by her late conduct that it wouldn't take a speech as long as the Ten Commandments to send me off to the river, leaving you and your traps, your ark and your children, your manservants and your maidservants, your oxen and your asses, to fight this battle with the Iroquois by yourselves. Open that window, floating Tom, and I'll blunder through and do the same job to the front door." A moment of silence succeeded, and a noise like that produced by the fall of a heavy body followed. A deep execration from hurry succeeded, and then the whole interior of the building seemed alive. The noises that now so suddenly, and we may add so unexpectedly even to the Delaware, broke the stillness within, could not be mistaken. They resembled those that would be produced by a struggle between tigers in a cage. Once or twice the Indian yell was given, but it seemed smothered and as if it proceeded from exhausted or compressed throats, and in a single instance a deep and another shockingly revolting execration came from the throat of hurry. It appeared as if bodies were constantly thrown upon the floor with violence, as often rising to renew the struggle. Chingachgook felt greatly at a loss what to do. He had all the arms in the ark, Hutter and Hurry having proceeded without their rifles, but there was no means of using them, or of passing them to the hands of their owners. The combatants were literally caged, rendering it almost as impossible under the circumstances to get out as to get into the building. Then there was Hist to embarrass his movements, and to cripple his efforts. With a view to relieve himself from this disadvantage, he told the girl to take the remaining canoe and to join Hutter's daughters, who were incautiously but deliberately approaching, in order to save herself and to warn the others of their danger. But the girl positively and firmly refused to comply. At that moment no human power, short of an exercise of superior physical force, could have induced her to quit the ark. The exigency of the moment did not admit of delay, and the Delaware, seeing no possibility of serving his friends, cut the line, and by a strong shove forced the scow some twenty feet clear of the piles. Here he took the sweeps, and succeeding in getting a short distance to windward, if any direction could be thus termed in so light an air, but neither the time nor his skill at the oars allowed the distance to be great. When he ceased rowing, the ark might have been a hundred yards from the platform, and half that distance to the southward of it, the sail being lowered. Judith and Hetty had now discovered that something was wrong, and were stationary a thousand feet farther north. All this while the furious struggle continued within the house. In scenes like these, events thicken in less time than they can be related. 
from the moment when the first fall was heard within the building to that when the Delaware ceased his awkward attempts to row, it might have been three or four minutes, but it had evidently served to weaken the combatants. The oaths and execrations of hurry were no longer heard, and even the struggles had lost some of their force and fury. Nevertheless, they still continued with unabated perseverance. At this instant the door flew open, and the fight was transferred to the platform, the light, and the open air. A Huron had undone the fastenings of the door, and three or four of his tribe rushed after him upon the narrow space, as if glad to escape from some terrible scene within. The body of another followed, pitched headlong through the door with terrific violence. Then March appeared, raging like a lion at bay, and for an instant freed from his numerous enemies. Hutter was already a captive and bound. There was now a pause in the struggle, which resembled a lull in a tempest. The necessity of breathing was common to all, and the combatants stood watching each other, like mastiffs that have been driven from their holds and are waiting for a favorable opportunity of renewing them. We shall profit by this pause to relate the manner in which the Indians had obtained possession of the castle, and this the more willingly because it may be necessary to explain to the reader why a conflict which had been so close and fierce should have also been so comparatively bloodless. Rivenoak and his companion, particularly the latter who would appear to be a subordinate and occupied solely with his raft, had made the closest observations in their visits to the castle. Even the boy had brought away minute and valuable information. By these means the Hurons obtained a general idea of the manner in which the place was constructed and secured, as well as of details that enabled them to act intelligently in the dark. Notwithstanding the care that Hutter had taken to drop the ark on the east side of the building when he was in the act of transferring the furniture from the former to the latter, he had been watched in a way to render the precaution useless. Scouts were on the lookout on the eastern as well as on the western shore of the lake, and the whole proceeding had been noted. As soon as it was dark, rafts like that already described approached from both shores to reconnoitre, and the ark had passed within fifty feet of one of them without its being discovered the men it held lying at their length on the logs, so as to blend themselves and their slow-moving machine with the water. When these two sets of adventurers drew near the castle, they encountered each other, and after communicating their respective observations, they unhesitatingly approached the building. As had been expected, it was found empty. The rafts were immediately sent for a reinforcement to the shore, and two of the savages remained to profit by their situation. These men succeeded in getting on the roof, and by removing some of the bark, in entering what might be termed the garret. Here they were found by their companions. Hatchets now opened a hole through the squared logs of the upper floor, through which no less than eight of the most athletic of the Indians dropped into the rooms beneath. Here they were left, well supplied with arms and provisions, either to stand a siege or to make a sortie, as the case might require. The night was passed in sleep, as is usual, with Indians in a state of inactivity. The returning day brought them a view of the approach of the ark through the loops, the only manner in which light and air were now admitted, the windows being closed most effectually with plank, rudely fashioned to fit. As soon as it was ascertained that the two white men were about to enter by the trap, the chief who directed the proceedings of the Hurons took his measures accordingly. He removed all the arms from his own people, even to the knives, in distrust of savage ferocity when awakened by personal injuries, and he hid them where they could not be found without a search. 
Ropes of bark were then prepared, and taking their stations in the three different rooms, they all waited for the signal to fall upon their intended captives. As soon as the party had entered the building, men without replaced the bark of the roof, removed every sign of their visit, with care, and then departed for the shore. It was one of these who had dropped his moccasin, which he had not been able to find again in the dark. Had the death of the girl been known, it is probable that nothing could have saved the lives of Hurry and Hutter. But that event occurred after the ambush was laid, and at a distance of several miles from the encampment near the castle. Such were the means that had been employed to produce the state of things we shall continue to describe. End of chapter 19 Recording by Bill Borst